From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She has dedicated her career to studying pox viruses like monkeypox, and she's our guest. The way this virus is spreading for this outbreak is very different than the way it spread before. And unfortunately, it actually seems to be making it more difficult to contain. How it spreads and what these sorts of viruses might actually teach us. Then it's a small public university in a small remote town. Meet the new president of Western Colorado University in Gunnison. The high school students that will be coming to us in the next decade are going to be increasingly diverse. They're going to be increasingly first generation and they'll have less affluency. And a massive art project that spanned a valley in Colorado for just a day. Hi, I'm Seth Kent, and I donated a van to CPR. All we needed was the title and the keys. It was really great to be able to make a larger donation like that. We're Evergreen members, but at nowhere near that level. Uh, It will take us years to match that, but it feels really great to be able to give a really significant donation to CPR, and it feels like it's put to good use, so that's good too. It is super easy to donate your vehicle at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Monkeypox cases in Colorado jumped in July to 28. There were just six the month before. The World Health Organization declared it spread a global emergency. At this very hour, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is unveiling its plan to distribute nearly 800,000 doses of vaccine. While anyone can be exposed to this virus, men who have sex with men have been hardest hit to this point. The disease can be excruciating, but it is eminently survivable. We're going to meet a scientist now who has dedicated her career to pox viruses. Dr. Amy McNeil is an associate professor at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. And uh, Professor, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. So you are in the College of Veterinary Medicine. This disease originated in non-human animals. Uh, So does monkeypox come from monkeys? Uh, No, it it actually doesn't. We believe that uh, the reservoir for monkeypox virus is uh, mostly squirrels and rodents. Um, It was just first discovered and described in monkeys that had been transported to Denmark from Africa. Ah. That's where its name came from. So in the place it originated, it would have been transferred from rodents to people. Is that right? Correct. That's what we, yes, seems to be the case. Staying in this kind of elementary territory, what is a pox? So it's actually the description of the lesions that pox viruses cause. Um, There are many different types of pox viruses that infect many different species, but most of them cause a a sore on the skin that eventually forms um, kind of a vesicle or a blister and then opens up and starts to ooze. So it becomes ulcerated and then it scars over as it heals, and when the scar forms, um, it will fall off eventually and cause a scar. So um, that's pretty common for for 
almost all pox viruses out there, whether they affect birds or people or rodents. Um, and so they're named after their, the way the lesion looks. By now, we're all pretty familiar with how COVID spreads. And so I think it's a good frame of reference to ask how the spread of monkeypox compares. Help us understand Yeah, that. it's quite different. Um, it spreads most effectively when the lesion is touched or um, something that touches the lesion touches a new person uh, or animal. And so direct contact is their the main mode of transmission of pox viruses and monkeypox. Um, it also can spread in secretions. So if a person has a lesion in the mouth or the nose or um, in the rectum, then the virus can be shed in saliva um, and in feces too. So some of these poxes can be inside one's mouth, which sounds sort of excruciating. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I have heard some discussion of droplets associated with uh, with monkeypox. So, like, to talk to us about the airborne nature of this or not. I mean, less than COVID, yeah. it sounds like. It's much less than COVID. Um, a similar pox virus that was eradicated um in an amazing story uh, by the WHO years ago with smallpox. And that was spread uh, a little bit more with aerosol. Monkeypox, we believe, is really, you have to have contact with these large droplets that contain the virus in order to get it. So it's, it's much more difficult to spread through small droplets in the air. Okay. Um, and really, we believe it, it takes large droplets either in food that's been discarded or by really close um, interactions like kissing um, could could spread it. As I said, monkeypox has been spreading rapidly among men who have sex with men, uh, which is why the limited vaccine supply has been focused on that community. Uh, we understand that it'll also be made available to some young people with cases now reported in children in California and Washington, D.C., Mm-hmm. Doctor, why did the U.S. stop widely vaccinating for smallpox in somewhere in the 1970s? Because that would have given everyone some protection, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, so the main reason is we had a different vaccine then. The vaccine that was used to eradicate smallpox was a live replicating vaccine. So we were actually giving people a mild pox virus illness to create enough antibody to protect against smallpox. And that vaccine has some potential side effects that were deemed to be more serious than the disease once we eradicated smallpox. And the other pox viruses that it protects against, monkeypox and cowpox and vaccinia virus, um, those aren't endemic in the United States. They were really only found in small areas of the world. And so the chances of getting those were low. Um, so it was deemed that the vaccine risks were higher than the risk of getting disease. And so we stopped vaccinating. Yeah. Now yeah. we have developed a much safer vaccine. It doesn't replicate. Um, so it's wise to get boosted for it to have full protection, but it's still very effective. 
And since the disease uh, risks are now getting higher and the vaccine risks are much lower, it makes sense to start making it available to certain uh, people that might be exposed. Which the, the federal federal government is doing, although some have complained that it's uh, been too slow. Oh. <laughs> yes. I, I yes. checked, in fact, the state health department's monkeypox vaccine sign-up. It's currently closed, quote, due to extremely limited supply. There are no longer vaccine appointments available, end quote. Uh, we may learn more indeed this week from the Department of Health and Human Services. You, you've certainly encountered people who've contracted pox viruses. What do they say it was like? Yeah, I've, um, I've been in close contact with people who have had both vaccinia um, and cowpox. Um, those tend to be more a, of a local infection, but it's very similar to what you hear with monkeypox, monkeypox can be generalized and can be much more painful. But with those viruses, typically people encounter them uh, and the virus enters through the skin of the hands. And so they get a lesion on their hand. And then um, often they get really swollen lymph nodes that are very painful and may get a little bit of fever and feel a little crummy for a couple of days. And then this big lesion starts and it takes um, usually about three weeks to heal completely. Um, a lot of people think that maybe they got a spider bite or an insect bite when they first see the lesion hmm. uh, until it progresses to the full um, pox-like lesion that we were talking about before. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Amy McNeil from the Microbiology, Immunology, and Pathology Department at Colorado State University. She's an expert in pox viruses, which originated in non-human animals. Uh, and so it's on the veterinary end that she has been uh, most involved in understanding these viruses. And I suppose one question is, could it become endemic to the United States? And I know that you would look to animals to help determine that, wouldn't you? Correct. Yeah, that's one of the things a lot of us are most concerned about, really. Um, it could easily spread to a rodent population here in the United States through um, waste material or discarded food. Uh, from a person who has monkeypox. And so that kind of reverse transmission into the population is, is something we want to try to prevent or at least um, be aware of quickly if it happens. So um, we're looking now to see or when, and hope to start exploring what natural reservoirs might be here in the United States. Um, we're worried about, again, squirrels and, and mice uh, species because that seems to be a common species that is a reservoir in other endemic areas of the world. Hmm. Is there a monkeypox vaccine for animals? We use the same one that we use in humans. <laughs> so um, there in Germany, actually, um, cowpox virus, which is another similar pox virus to monkeypox, um, can be a very big problem in zoo animals. And so they have actually used this non-replicating pox virus vaccine in, um, in zoo animals to try to prevent loss of those very um, important species 
that they have in their collections. Of course, it's not as if there's going to be some mass campaign of vaccinating squirrels or things like no, that. No, no. Uh, yeah, and so that's <laughs> the why. The hope is um, to, to make sure that we can monitor those populations and and hopefully stop the spread, which obviously has been difficult in just the humans. Um, but uh, yeah, the hope is that you can have surveillance available to know when these outbreaks might be starting. Uh, Dr. McNeil, help us understand why someone would dedicate their life to studying poxes. What, what do you hope <laughs> to learn from them? Yeah, um, they're, they're actually pretty fascinating viruses. They are large um, viruses. They have big gen- genomes and encode a lot of proteins that specifically target the immune system of the host that they infect. And by learning from the viruses what proteins they make, we we can guess what aspects of the immune response are are most important um, to protect against them. And so I I am an immunologist um, at heart and uh, really am very interested in how the immune system works and and what we can learn about it. Um, I have started actually using pox viruses as vectors to try to um, eliminate cancers in different species. So they can be used for good too. (laughs) Well, thanks for helping us understand this. That's Dr. Amy McNeil from the Microbiology, Immunology, and Pathology Department at Colorado State University. Indeed, an expert in pox viruses. And we'll be right back with a university president who sees promise in the many Coloradans who have college credits, but no degree yet. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. First-generation kids can struggle to fit in. That was true for Alan Benavides when his mother sent him to the first day of school in Aguayabera. And again, years later, when he went to Oregon to manage a minor league baseball team. I never felt more brown in my life. How Alan Benavides hit a home run. The new episode of CPR's podcast, Quien Are We? Exploring what it means to be Latino, Hispanic, Chicana, everywhere you find podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. With about 3,000 students, Western Colorado University in Gunnison may not be at the top of mind for those with visions of buffaloes or rams dancing in their heads. Western's new president, Brad Baca, wants to change that. As a first-generation Hispanic college student, one of his passions is who can access higher education. And Brad, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, It's wonderful to be here, Ryan. I'm a big fan of the program. Oh, that's kind. You only officially started this job at the beginning of the month, being named president, following, I'll say, some controversy involving your predecessor. We'll talk about that in a bit. I think it's interesting that one of the first things you're doing is a tour of the Front Range, meeting with alums, prospective students, and I believe you just left a breakfast with Hispanic leaders here in Denver. Is the Front Range the ripest place to pick students? Is it sort of key to the school's success? Absolutely, Ryan. At Western, we have about 75% of our undergraduate population are Colorado resident students, and about 75% of those come from the I-25 corridor from Pueblo to 
Fort Collins. So always a little dangerous when I do math on the fly. But that, that is to say, uh, a majority of your students come from the Front Range yes. then. Yes. And that all makes intuitive sense, right? That's where the population is in the state of Colorado. And being a state institution, that's our mission to serve Colorado residents first and foremost. I was just going to ask. So that's not something uh, in terms of percentages that you want to change dramatically Uh, that is having more out-of-state students? You know, out-of-state students help subsidize the education of Colorado residents because they pay more. more. So uh, we've always been fortunate, I think in large part given our location, that we're attractive to non-resident students. So about 25% of our student population comes from out-of-state, but they represent about half of our tuition budget. So Mm. it is an important financial component. And it also brings great geographic diversity to our campus, which I think is important for our Colorado residents, students to have. I understand you have students from all 50 states, but do you want to increase that then, or is 25% the sweet spot? I think 25 to 30% is probably a good sweet spot for us. Okay. You uh, invoked Gunnison being an attractive place for people to go to school. You know, I appreciate Gunnison very much and the skiing nearby. Crested Butte is not far away. It's also pretty remote. Mm -hmm. And I I wonder if geography also works against you. Uh, It can, certainly. We are hard to get to, but we're worth it. You know, one of the things that we're challenged with is because most of our students come outside the valley, they have to move to Gunnison. And, you know, they have that added cost of room and board that some students who might be on the front range and can attend a local community college or a local university has options to live at home and... and or commuter yeah, commute. sort of situation. Yeah, which is why... You know, for me, affordability and access are going to be key focal points. One of your goals is really to increase the availability of scholarships. How do you see that changing who attends? Yes, it's critically important that we expand and broaden our access to particularly to populations that are currently underserved. Like who? Like Latino populations, black populations, the growing populations in the state of Colorado, quite frankly. Um, When you look at the demographic shifts, what you're seeing is the high school students that will be coming to us in the next decade are going to be increasingly diverse. They're going to be increasingly first generation, and they'll have less affluency. And so for us, I think to remain viable, we have to figure out ways in which we can serve those populations and get them to Gunnison uh, for the wonderful educational experience we offer. And then keep them in yes. Gunnison, because it's, it's also about retention. It's about making them feel like they belong. Absolutely. Uh, this is not unrelated to your own story. Um, so my understanding is that you were accepted to Dartmouth, yes. an Ivy Leaguer. Mm-hmm. Um, but at first, you didn't think you'd be able to attend, right? Yes, absolutely. I, I still very vividly remember receiving my acceptance letter and thinking to myself, well, this was wonderful. There's absolutely zero way I'm going to be able to attend this institution. And a couple weeks later, I get something in the mail that was my financial aid package. And that was my first experience to this concept of need-blind admissions, which when you're an Ivy League institution that now has, I think, a $2.5 billion endowment, they're able to accept anybody under the premise that we, if we want you here, we will make it financially viable. And so... Um, what do you remember thinking when you learned that it would be possible then? Oh, I was joyful. 
I was very happy that I was going to have that experience. And so I've carried that with me throughout my career. And you've been close to the books. I'll say that um, your wife, Julie, is the school's chief financial officer. Your background also includes finance. At one point, you were the budget director for the Colorado Community College System. Before becoming president, you were Western's chief operating officer, so dealing with a lot of the money there. And just by way of of your background, you were born in Greeley, raised in Trinidad, indeed a first-generation college student. How much pushback do you get when you're trying to sell Gunnison and Dartmouth comes up? Now, I, you know, I'll say you came back and got a master's at CU Boulder. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, here's this Dartmouth kid <laughs> who's trying to tell me to come to Gunnison. <laughs> right. Uh, well, Ron, I will say I don't think it comes up very often. You know, I my home is Gunnison. My institution is Western. And so I sell the Western story. And as I look back at my experience as a uh, young adult going to Dartmouth, Western would have been a great fit for me as well. Small, intimate, liberal arts focused. As somebody growing up in Colorado, I just had a desire to leave the state for a little bit, explore a little bit. So I guess I haven't thought much about that question because I don't get it very often. Mm. Like, oh, you're too fancy. How can can you be advocating for this this institution? But I suppose no state institution can compete with wanderlust if a child really feels that they need to leave the state. How did it feel when you arrived at Dartmouth? And how did that experience shape how you want to welcome, particularly students of color? Yes. It was a very interesting experience on on two fronts, not just culturally, but also, I might say, environmentally. Uh, My most vivid memory of that was arriving, so never visited the campus, flew out on an airplane to Boston, took a bus up, and spent my first three days on a kind of a wilderness exploration part of their kind of first year trip. Yeah, uh-huh. orientation. And it rained for three days straight. And coming from Colorado where you don't have that kind of rain, I didn't know, am I going to survive this physically? <laughs> and on top of that, just the woodedness there. You, you don't have the wide open expanses that you have in Colorado. And so I felt quite frankly, claustrophobic. Hmm. Um, so I had that experience. But also, there's not a lot of kids from Colorado out there, period. And there was not a lot of diverse population at the time. This was the early 90s. And so I did feel a little isolated culturally. I grew up in a small rural community, but it was uh, economically depressed. Trinidad you know, struggles um, at times. And being around affluent students was something I've never experienced before. I I didn't have a population or a community there. I had to build my own, and I was fortunate enough to develop a lot of very close, endearing friendships um, through that process. And what of that experience do you bring to making student life better? Could you give me a specific example of something you'd like to develop? I mean, is it just a numbers game? Is it about having programs? Well, I'd like to elevate. We have a multicultural 
uh, center on our campus that is kind of the hub for a lot of the students. That's where they kind of find their home. I'd like to elevate the visibility of that, particularly for students that are coming to visit campus, prospective students. So they understand that they have a landing spot where they can start to build a community and then expand out from there. But I do think, as you mentioned, there's numbers to this game too. You know, the more diverse we become, the more successful we will be in attracting those students. Your campus was roiled when on January 7th, 2021, the day after the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, then-president of Western, Greg Salisbury, wrote an email that seemed to compare that event with the protests that had taken place across the country in the wake of the murder of George Floyd the summer before. Salisbury was initially supported by the university's trustees, but he was eventually forced out after protests from the faculty. I'm wondering what you took away from those events and how they might impact your role. It was certainly was a challenging time for the campus and for the nation. Um, and, you know, I, I just look forward to leading this campus. And I don't want to spend a, a lot of time reflecting back on that particular time. I think my focus is going to be, you know, how can we establish a culture of unity, a culture of shared responsibility and stewardship? Does that mean keeping your politics to yourself, do you think? I think... As a president, I think part of your responsibility is to try to stay neutral in those types of situations, but to provide a voice when a voice is needed. And sometimes that can be hard to navigate and hard to understand when that is and when it isn't Mm -hmm. needed. I think there are some who'd say being neutral in the face of trying to overthrow the government, (laughs) that, that silence there is difficult. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. That's why I said it. I think it's it's important to know when it's important to speak out and when it's important to keep your personal or political beliefs to yourself. And it's something, you know, I'm going to have to learn, quite frankly, um, in this new role. It also strikes me as very similar to the questions around academic freedom. Yes. You know, where does that begin and end? Right. Yes. When you met with Hispanic leaders in Denver, one of them questioned the importance of higher education, you know, noting that families shell out a lot of money without necessarily receiving a commensurate payoff. What is your response to that sentiment? You know, it's a real conversation nationally, I think. Yeah, and it's a conversation here in the state of Colorado. And in fact, I know the state is currently working on a strategic plan and looking at kind of expanding the definition of student success to be something focused on return on investment, Hmm. so job placement. And I think that's important. And we need to be able to provide that value proposition to our students. And Does does that mean English degrees are dead? No, I don't think so. Not at all. Um, In fact, they might take a little longer to realize that return. So it's going to be important how we measure that return. Hmm. But no, I, I think the value of a liberal arts education is that it not only provides you opportunities to career paths, and we have to identify those career paths, those professional opportunities for all of our programs, our humanity programs, our social sciences, and those that you don't typically associate with a professional degree. Hmm. And we do that at Western. We talk to our students about, if you're in this major, here are some of your career opportunities. Here are some internship possibilities. 
But in addition to that, to me, the value of a liberal arts education, we cannot lose that as a society. That pursuit of your passions and your purpose is a critical component to ensuring, I think, the long-term economic and cultural vitality of our region in the Gunnison and Western Slope, but also throughout the state of Colorado. At the breakfast you attended, former state senator and longtime political leader Polly Baca talked about how excited she was to see you named president. You know, to have a Latino as a president of a university here in Colorado, we as Latinos, and I'm, I'll speak specifically of my family, my parents who, who never received a high school education, my dad only got to eighth grade and my mom 11th grade, so they never had their high school degree they insisted that their three daughters get their college degrees. If they were alive now, they would be so excited about a Baca or a Latino becoming the president of a university. I mean, wow, that is huge. I wonder if it gets tiring being the first to do something or the only or one of the few. Is that something you've felt a lot in your career? You know, I don't think I have. And and first off, Joe Garcia, who's a, a dear friend of mine and a mentor of mine. Former lieutenant governor. Former, yeah, yeah, he's president of CSU Pueblo, now Indeed. the chancellor of this community college system. So it's nice to have people to follow in the footsteps of. But I, I, I'm proud of what I've accomplished, and I hope that I serve as as inspiration for folks that come from similar backgrounds, and I'm here to support them. One of the initiatives that Western has started is an engineering program. And students attend your campus in Gunnison and take their initial classes. Uh, Then, following their sophomore year, they switch to online courses taught by CU faculty. And they eventually receive a degree from CU. I believe $80 million has been invested in this initiative. But in some ways, it seems contradictory to me. Like, you want kids to forego the bigger state schools, embrace the Western experience, uh, but you're hooking up with them, as it were, with this program. I mean, talk to me about that tension. Oh, I don't see any tension. Um, Partnerships are what the state of Colorado is looking to leverage because there's no sense in duplicating effort because we don't have the resources to do that. To have two engineering schools in that way. Uh, Just the accreditation process to get an accredited engineering school, which you have to have, takes years. So the State Department of Higher Education says that only a little more than half of adults in Colorado have an associate's degree or higher. About 28% of adults stopped their education after high school. Uh, The state has this initiative, Colorado Rises, that has set a goal of seeing 66% of adults receiving a post-high school certificate or degree by 2025. Where do you see Western fitting into that larger state initiative to get more people here educated beyond high school? Well, I see two ways in which Western is playing a, a critical role in that. Number one is... We have a very strong concurrent enrollment program, which runs through many high schools throughout the state of Colorado. So you're taking college classes even as you're in high school. In high school. Uh And I think that's critically important in helping students realize that a college education is attainable from an academic perspective. I can do this work. Mm. And the other thing is not everybody 
is going to come to Gunnison, and we realize that. And we don't have capacity, quite frankly, to mm. take, you know, we're, we're probably not going to be an institution that has 15,000 students. Our community just couldn't handle that type of population. So what can we be doing from a remote perspective? And one of the things that we've initiated recently is an adult degree completion program, another way to serve an underserved population, so to speak, of adult learners who have some college but no degree. The numbers suggest there's about three-quarter of a million adults in Colorado that fit that category. Oh, that's fascinating. In other words, it's not as black and white as uh, this person doesn't have a degree, this person does, because there are actually a bunch of people with credits close to it. Yes, absolutely. And you think operating remotely with those folks Mm -hmm. can help close the gap? Yes. So we've started this program where, where we take kind of Western secret sauce, which is that intimate learning environment, direct connections with professors who are well-trained and have terminal degrees in their areas of expertise and get them to completion. I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Based on your background, uh, really on the financial side of things in higher education, it occurs to me that you've gone from kind of like spreadsheets to having to shake a lot of hands now. It's a very public-facing role as president of, of a college. Is that exhausting for you? Is that tough for you? Does it... <laughs> yeah, I am an uh, introvert by nature. Uh-huh. And so this is going to be challenging. I, I served as the interim president at Western back in 2013. So I had a taste of a this taste. back then. It didn't scare you away. And it didn't you? scare me away, um, <laughs> surprisingly. But yeah, it's going to take a little bit more energy than you know I'm used to exerting on a daily basis. Well, you were kind to open up that way to us. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate the time. Brad Baca is the new president of Western Colorado University in Gunnison. Coloradans are about to get checks from the state, $750 per adult with a few catches. CPR's Andrew Kenny explained to Nathan Heffel who gets the money and why. Andrew, let's start with the checks themselves. Who's going to be getting them? Well, a whole lot of people, like 3.7 million people throughout the state are estimated to be eligible, and they'll be for about $750 each or $1,500 for joint filers. So basically, if you're a married couple, for example, you might get double the normal amount. And those checks, they they are actual checks they are being printed right now, I believe, are going to start reaching people's mailboxes next week. And everyone should have them by around Labor Day, that's early September at the latest. Um, And as to who's getting them, it's for anybody who's lived in Colorado for all of last year, all of 2021, who turned 18 by the time the year was over. And there's also a couple more requirements. Like if you want to get your refund in the coming month, you have to have filed your tax return or applied for various tax credits by June 30th of this year. What about people who didn't get their taxes done by then? Good news. It's not too late. It's uh, just going to take a little bit longer for them to get their refund checks. What you would have to do if you haven't done your taxes yet is to file an extension and submit your taxes by the extended deadline in October. But if you do that, you will not be getting your refund until early next year. By the way, there are some people who may not normally file a tax return, like a a senior with no reportable income. They're on Social Security. But they should go ahead and file a tax return for 2021 anyway if they want to get this refund check. So where is all this money coming from? 
It's the government. (laughs) (laughs) You weren't expecting me to say that. Right. Well, actually, ultimately, it's taxpayers. It's taxes. Basically, the government, state government, every year collects money from all different sources, especially sales taxes and property taxes. But there's rules in the state constitution, TABOR, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, that says the state can only keep so much of that revenue in a given year. And beyond that, they have to give a certain amount back. And so right now, the state has collected a ton more sales and property tax than it's allowed, per se. So it has to give them back. That's how we get to refunds. The government basically bleeds off its excess revenues by refunding it back to taxpayers in some form or another. So let me get this straight. Taxpayers were always going to get these refunds? Yeah, that's right. The government has got to pay this money back. They did, however, make some changes to how the refunds work, which is why we're getting them now as opposed to later. If legislators and the Polis administration had not passed this law, this current refund set would have gone out next spring. And they also changed how the refunds are calculated, how much people are getting. All right. Tell me more about that. What's the normal formula for divvying up this kind of refund? All right. Simple as possible. Normally, you get a bigger refund if you earned higher income, at least from this type of uh, uh, tax refund. So the idea was usually that if you paid more taxes, you should get more back. But they've made it somewhat more progressive, you could call it, this time around. They're going to give the same amount to everybody who qualifies. So even the lowest income people, they could get a few hundred dollars more than they would normally get. While the highest income people, they'll actually get less. They could miss out on potentially thousands of dollars that they would have gotten under the normal formula because, again, everybody's getting the same. You're taking some of the refunds that would have gone to really wealthy people and you're kind of redistributing that money to the lower income people. It seems a bit convenient that taxpayers will be getting these checks this summer when there is an election just around the corner instead Mm -hmm. of next spring. Yeah, it is convenient. And, you know, they are branding this. They're calling it the Colorado cashback and really talking it up. And of course, like you say, the general election's right around the corner. And so the Democrats who engineered this have taken some criticism from conservatives who say it's just a, a way to pay out this money that was going to get paid anyway and make Democrats look good. But Governor Polis defended it earlier this year. He basically said, well, why should government hold on to your money for another nine months In other words, you know, with inflation, a rocky economy, why not just pay out the money now? Uh, And then, of course, they also tweaked the formula. So they're arguing that this new formula is more fair, more equitable. So are Tabor rebates like this something Coloradans can expect to see in the next few years as well? Yeah, even though the economy may be a little shaky right now, Tabor refunds are projected for the next couple of fiscal years. Uh, totaling into the billions of dollars, but they are expected to be smaller than this year's total refund amount. So don't count on this kind of check showing up every year. Well, we'll all be looking for those checks. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. CPR Public Affairs reporter Andrew Kenny speaking with our colleague Nathan Heffel about coming tax refunds. And we'll be right back to draw the curtain, a curtain that's 1,250 feet wide. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the late summer, male deer, elk, and moose are often seen with red shreds and ribbons hanging from their antlers. It's not necessarily the result of a gory fight. Instead, they're peeling off the velvet that coats spring antlers. Velvet is actually skin, complete with blood vessels to carry nutrients to growing antlers, the fastest growing bones in existence. On elk, they grow an inch a day. 
Moose can gain as much as a pound of antler every day. During the rut, the rattle of antlers echoes in Colorado forests and mountains. After breeding, bucks and bulls shed the heavy racks they no longer need to move a little more easily as they turn their attention to grazing enough to make it through the winter. Look for shed antlers on your next hike in the woods and keep your eyes open even wider for a glimpse of an animal with the rarest antlers in all the West, the legendary jackalope. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Dazzle Jazz in Denver. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It was a massive art project that lasted for just about a day before strong winds forced its removal. Valley Curtain by renowned artist Christo and his wife Jean-Claude was installed 50 years ago in Rifle. Orange fabric draped across a river valley in the Grand Hogback Mountain Range. Its influence on artists and critics continues to this day. Filmmakers Albert and David Mazels produced an Oscar-nominated documentary about the installation. I spoke with Albert in 2010. Do you remember the Valley Curtain Project being controversial? Yes, I don't remember all the details of the controversy, but it's, it happens every time with each one of his projects. Uh, I've made films of half a dozen of them, and uh, sometimes it, uh, well, the Gates Project, which was the most recent, uh, it took 23 years for uh, Christo and Jean-Claude to get permission to do it. These were the gates in Central Park in New York, of course. Right. Does he get disappointed? Does Christo get frustrated? I'm sure it, it, it's only human to feel that kind of frustration, but uh, it doesn't overwhelm him. He's quite determined to do what he thinks uh, is the right thing, and he does it. And then most people, uh, even those who were so skeptical ahead of time, most of them come around and think, oh my goodness, there's really something quite beautiful that's been added to, in, in this case, the river or the, or the valley or, 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 or Central Park or the islands in Biscayne Bay that were surrounded with fabric. Nobody knows what's, uh, what it's going to be, and so so many people are too much afraid of the unknown. But... Uh, he, he is quite happy to go with it, whatever, whatever happens. People like it or don't like it, uh, uh, it's all part of the real thing. I imagine you keep following Christo and, and before her death, Jean-Claude, because they're such compelling characters. You, you wouldn't keep doing it if they were boring people. Right. Well, compelling uh, characters and also... Uh, it's not just an artist standing uh, in front of a canvas and, and painting. That, uh, that's not a film. But uh, this has all the elements of a, of a good documentary, the things that take place just, just because he started the project. In the film about the Valley Curtain, why is it that you decide to focus only on the installation and not on all of the shenanigans beforehand? I'm not sure, but I think we may have been brought into the project a little bit late for that. But uh, once we got into it, so many wonderful things happened. One, one thing that was so satisfying was to see that the ordinary guys, the guys working on it, uh, who had no formal knowledge of art, 
they came around to understand it better than many uh, people who are very sophisticated in their knowledge of art. You actually leave as a mystery, really until the end of the film, how they feel about it. Because I remember sitting watching thinking, do they hate this? And they're sort of rolling their eyes. You know, do they see it as just a job that they're getting paid for? Or do they have some deep appreciation for this? Well, they came to uh, that kind of understanding from uh, all the work that they put into it. Uh, they were witnessing uh, the art better than most people because they saw the whole progress of it. The film ends with uh, a comment from one of the iron workers on the project and his sense of what they've accomplished. Were you skeptical the way most people were at first? No. No, I can't see, I can't see any reason in being skeptical over it. They built the Golden Gate Bridge. They built uh, the Space Needle, Empire State Building. You know, I mean, uh, it's not the erection of it, it's the, uh, the thought. This is a vision, boy. I, I would never in a lifetime ever thought that anybody would ever think of doing something like this. I just feel kind of proud. I got to help. <laughs> Albert, a lot of Christo and Jean-Claude's projects involve construction workers and iron workers. Is this a theme in his projects that they come to appreciate the art? It turns out to be. It turns out to be a theme because uh, uh, that's what happens. I I don't know that uh, he's sure in each project that the workers will be that sensitive and uh, appreciate it as a work of art, but uh, that's what happens. And and so that's what we get on film. And once the the curtain is dropped, the, the workers are shouting with excitement. Do you remember that moment? Yes. Yes, I do. And, and of course, <clears throat> holding the camera steady, uh, uh, I felt that excitement. Or at least trying to hold it steady, right? Right. right, <laughs> right. Strong winds keep kicking up during the installation, which eventually brought the curtain down, and Christo expresses some concern about it. I worry, really, if the wind comes. Zach, we really don't worry about the wind? All right, Don. Get her fired up. Yeah, the strong winds, but then, of course, uh, they came up with this wonderful expression, zero wind. <laughs> and even, even to this day, when I sit uh, uh, in, the, in a forest or near a tree, and I see that not a leaf is moving, that expression comes up in my mind, zero wind, oh. In, in the film, you interviewed some golfers who could see the project in the distance as they golfed. Oh, yeah. Why did you include their perspective? Be- because it was a different perspective. Uh, they were far enough away to get that much closer to it, <laughs> to see it in its uh, entirety. Albert Mazels, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. 
Albert Maisel speaking with me in 2010 about the documentary he made with his brother David, Christo's Valley Curtain. It chronicled the installation of Christo and Jean-Claude's first art project in Colorado in 1972. There's a panel discussion about Valley Curtain's legacy 50 years later, tonight at the Vail Mountain School. And hearing that interview, to be honest, is an exercise in loss. Albert, his brother, and the two artists are all deceased now. Have you seen the new Top Gun movie yet? The summer blockbusters become Paramount's highest earner, soaring past $1.2 billion globally. Top Gun Maverick also has fans thinking about the 1986 original, including country singer Claire Dunn from Two Buttes, Colorado. She recently paid homage with a cover of Take My Breath Away from the 86 soundtrack. Country crooner Claire Dunn covering Take My Breath Away, originally done by the American new wave band Berlin for the original Top Gun. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to a team that takes my breath away. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.